So we are ready to go. It is 9.30 and I have a lot of material to cover. Um, as you probably know, we are using a particular textbook for this, uh, this particular class and chapters are assigned to the different te teachers. Uh, the, the textbook is called Christ from Beginning to End and the chapter on the prophets is the chapter that was assigned to me, which happens to be a pretty long chapter with a lot of material in there. And um, so I'm going to have to be some, somewhat selective. I'm going to try to cram in as much as I can. And I know because we're recording this that they uh, has to kind of keep, um, just kind of for me to keep going. And uh, we won't be able to record a lot of questions or anything. So um, if you do have a, a urgent question, feel free to ask. I'll try to repeat it. but. But um, for the most part, I'm just going to kind of plow through this material as quickly as I can. Um, so if you think I'm going too quickly, you can slow me down. But this, uh, this section is on the prophets. Uh, and with regard to the prophets, the chapter title is The Prophets, a, Mes a Message Full of Tension. And we'll explain what that has to do with as we go through. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time here this morning. Lord God, we are aware that you are the one that we are dependent upon for everything, for life and health and strength. <clears throat> and certainly we are dependent upon our understanding of your word and for me, the presentation of your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you would undertake in this, uh, this hour. May we um, be instructed from the scriptures in a way that will be edifying, in a way that will be helpful for us to understand what you have communicated to us in your inspired word through the prophets. So be with us, Lord. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. There are 17 prophets. Obviously, because there are 17 prophets, we're not going to be able to look at each of the prophets. What we're going to do is we're going to do some overview, some background, important background material, and some overview material with regard to the prophets. And then we'll dip in here and there to see what some of the prophets say about various um, topics. There are five major prophets, just as a little bit of background, five major prophets. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the five major prophets. And there are 12 minor prophets, and I'm not going to read them all, but uh, you can see those prophets. And like I said, we're not going to have time to look at each one of these or do a background study and, and uh, overview of, of each of these prophets. But just be aware of the fact that there are 17 prophets in, in the Old Testament, and uh, we will do some summary work on them. In order to understand the prophets, it is vitally important, I believe, to understand the context of the prophets. And I'm just going to do a little bit of a review. This is going to be a review of some of what we've already covered in the previous sessions. So I'm going to try to go through that quickly. But it's still important for us to understand the prophets uh, to understand this, uh, this background material, the, the context of them. And you remember, of course, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, 
um, the curse upon the serpent. And the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring. He, that is Christ, we know eventually it's Christ, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the, the serpent's heel. That is the, the fall and the promise that God made through the curse upon the serpent that he was going to bring a seed, an offspring, to curse, to, uh, to uh, uh, bruise the serpent's head. And then we saw the flood and Noah, and God established the Noahic covenant and, uh, and established a framework within which he was going to work out his plan of redemption. And then comes Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in Genesis 12, God makes this great promise to Abraham, making him a, a great nation and uh, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And then in a couple of chapters later, three chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord comes again to Abraham and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. He already promised them to make him a great nation. You are going to have a great number of offspring. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And here's a key element to the, what we're going to see the Abrahamic covenant. That is, Abraham believed God. He had faith in what God promised. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is a, a, a question that Abraham asks to the Lord after he promises that he will have a large number of seed and that he's going to give him the land. And what happens next is astounding. We kind of read over it kind of quickly sometimes. And what happens next is really amazing if you stop and think about it. God is going to establish what we call the Abrahamic covenant, or I'm going to call it the Abrahamic covenant, uh, in Genesis chapter 15. In chapter 15, verses 7 to 12, you remember what happened? God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to take a heifer and a ram and a goat. I want you to cut them in half, put them on opposite each other. And that's what Abraham did. Then he falls into a deep sleep or a trance. And he sees a smoking oven or a torch passing between the parts of these animals. Well, what's going on there? That seems strange to us. But in the ancient Near East, what this was is this was part of a covenant ratification ceremony. And when, he, when Abraham sees the smoking oven and the torch representing God passing through the parts of these animals, God is in essence saying to him, may it happen to me what has happened to these animals if I fail to keep this covenant that I am making with you, Abraham. And so he comes to Abraham with his, who has this question, how am I going to know that I'm going to possess it? And he says, look, Abraham, I'll die before I fail to keep my word. That is astounding. And Hebrews describes it in this way. So when God, desiring to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, now he had already promised, we saw that in Genesis 12, to the heirs of the promise, that should have been good enough in a sense to Abraham, 
more convincing to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose that he expressed in the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. He is swearing an oath of ratification of the, of the covenant so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do you see what God is doing here? How gracious he is being? And that is the establishment of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, that God is going to keep his promise that through Abraham he's going to have a, a great number of offspring, a great number of seed, and that he is going to... Um, be a blessing to many nations. Then comes the Mosaic Covenant <clears throat> as part of the context of the, of the prophets. With, uh, with the Mosaic Covenant, <clears throat> you remember that uh, all the children of Israel grew in number, were in bondage in Egypt, they were delivered from Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, God appears to Moses, gives him the two tablets of the, of the covenant, really, of, of the Ten Commandments, and then um, after that, when they're at, at that, in that particular vicinity of Mount Sinai, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to oxen, of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which had all the words, the, the rules and the laws of the covenant, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, who said? Does God say? No, the people says, say. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then what does Moses do? And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, so he's got a blood basin, and he's throwing blood on people. Seems kind of strange to us. But this is a covenant ratification ceremony. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This law that I am giving to you, the people say, We will be obedient to it. And he throws the blood on the people. The, blood are the, the, the people are the ones who are swearing the oath of ratification now, not God. It is the people swearing the oath of ratification, saying, if we fail to keep this covenant, may the curses of the covenant be put upon us. And I don't have time to go through Deuteronomy 27 and following, but there's a, you can read that on your own. Just read all the curses that were read, by the way, when Joshua um, put, the pe put people on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. But one of the, let me just re read to you the last of the curses that is in chapter 27. It says, cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. In other words, it's saying, you're under a curse if you do not do all the words, all the laws of this covenant. Wow. All? Yeah. If you don't keep all the laws of this covenant, you are under a curse. And the people swore the oath of ratification and said, by doing so, may it be so.
That's the Mosaic Covenant. What's the key difference between the Mosaic and the Abrahamic Covenants? There are, there's a key difference between the two. Both of them are unilaterally, as Brother Jim brought out last week, both of them are unilaterally um, inaugurated or initiated by God. However, there is a significant difference. Under the Mosaic Covenant or under the Abrahamic Covenant, God swears the oath of ratification. Therefore, it is a promise covenant. It requires only faith. Under the Mosaic Covenant, Israel swears the oath of ratification. Therefore, it is a law covenant, and it requires obedience. And that is why Paul in Galatians chapter 3, I wish we had time to go through that, it's such a great passage, why Paul in Galatians 3 calls us sons of Abraham and not sons of Moses. And that is why Paul in Galatians chapter 3 characterizes the Abrahamic covenant as a promise and the Mosaic covenant as a law covenant. Then comes the Davidic covenant. Under the Davidic covenant, as uh, Brother Jim brought out last week, <clears throat> the Lord comes to David and he says, when, in establishing the covenant, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. Okay, so here's the line. There's a seed that's going to come from the woman, then through Abraham, and then through Abraham's, uh, one of his sons, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And now he's narrowing it down even further, saying that this line, this seed is going to come through David. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision. Notice it was a vision, by the way. We'll highlight that later. All this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God establishes a covenant with David. He promises to him that he would have an offspring, a seed, and that his, he would sit on the throne and that would sit on that throne forever. So how will God be faithful to the terms of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants? This is what we might call the historical tension that existed and that I've, our chapter is talking about. Abraham, the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants seem to promise blessing and uh, salvation. Though that's what's promised from them. But the Mosaic covenant promises cursing and destruction. How is God going? There's this kind of tension that ex exists in the history of Israel. How is God going to be uh, faithful to that? Well, the prophet's message and writings highlight this tension, and we will see how God is going to be faithful to that. So those, that's the context, the background to the, uh, the prophets. And it's vitally important, especially to understand these covenants, and in particular, well, all of them really, but um, uh, the, we'll see uh, more about that in, in a moment. Now let's look not only at the context of the prophets, but the characteristics of the prophets. The prophets all share certain things in common. They all share the same divine authority. When the prophets come, they use words like, thus says the Lord. 
And the Lord said to me, Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, hear what the Lord says. When they speak, they are speaking the words of God. They speak with divine authority. All the prophets um, share the same assignment in a covenant context. And we've just reviewed the covenant context. And they come as covenant lawyers many times. They come to... um, address Israel and prosecute Israel because Israel is breaking the Mosaic covenant. Not the Abrahamic. The Mosaic covenant. They promised, they swore the oath of ratification, said we will keep all these laws and all these rules. And they didn't. They, they failed over and over again. And the prophets come as prosecutors saying, look, you are breaking the covenant and God is going to bring on you the curses of that covenant that you swore he could bring upon you, in, in a sense, when you swore the oath of ratification. The prophets all share the same perspective on the future. Their future is, Uh, the view of the future that the prophets present is often collapsed. It's not really always real clear at that time when they were writing the two-stage fulfillment of those uh, promises of the Old Testament. You know, the first and second advents and sometimes collapsed in the view of the prophets. And then the prophets share the same diverse methods of communicating their message their actions, as well as their words. And so we see some odd things happen many times through the prophets. The, um, well, for example, uh, Hosea is told to marry a prostitute. And um, uh, Jeremiah buries his underwear under a rock, and uh, he returns later after many days to get it, teaches a lesson from that. Ezekiel eats a scroll. Um, he takes a, a brick and draws a map of the city on it, and creates a kind of diorama of the city. He's told he has to lay on his side for left side for 390 days and his right side for, for um, another 390 days. Isaiah walks around the city barefoot and naked for three years. So there's some strange things that these prophets do, but God has them do it in order to communicate uh, his, his message to them and kind of get the people's attention. So the prophets share the the same diverse methods of communicating their message. And the prophets share the same means of receiving their message. Um, Numbers chapter 12 and verse 14, I believe it is, tells us that God is going to communicate his message to the prophets through visions, dreams, and riddles, what are called riddles. That is, uh, I think the King James uses the term dark sayings. Um, It's not just like pre-written history. Um, as you would read, for example, in the history of uh, in the books of Moses. But rather, he uses visions and dreams, and that's why prophets are called seers, by the way. Um, he uses visions and dreams in order to communicate his message to them. And so there's sometimes there's a symbolism that is involved in, in uh, the communicating of their message. And then finally... Um, The prophets all share the same tension in their message because they announce both judgment and salvation. Judgment because they have failed to keep the Mosaic covenant. Salvation because he promised it through Abraham and David. And there's that tension that exists, and that's what we're going to look at now and highlight. So that's the context of the prophets, the characteristics of the prophets, and now we're going to look at the message of the prophets especially as it relates to judgment and um, salvation. In the prophets, 
comes a message of severe judgment. And we could summarize that judgment in four ways, under four terms. He promises destruction of Israel, deportation of Israel, the desertion of Israel, and and the divorce of Israel. Let's look at the first two, destruction and deportation. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we read, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the, uh, the fatherless their prey. And God, under the Mosaic Covenant, had very specific commands about taking care of the widows and orphans and doing justice and many other things. And what Isaiah is doing, he's not coming just pulling these things out of the air. He's saying, look, you are failing to keep the Mosaic Covenant that you promised to keep. Verse 3, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? I'm going to bring ruin from afar. Nations are going to come from afar, and they're going to bring you to ruin. To whom will you flee for help? You're going to be fleeing the city. You're going to be running away. Where will you leave your wealth? You're going to leave all your wealth. And God promised, he threatened that under the Mosaic Covenant. They agreed that they that this would come upon them by swearing the oath of ratification. And now in the history of Israel, Isaiah is saying, it's going to happen because you've been breaking the covenant. He says, nothing remains to, for you but to crouch among the prisoners or fall, fall among, the saint and being the, uh, among the slain. And being scattered among foreign nations was part of the curses of the Mosaic covenant. For all this, his anger was not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel says some of the same sort of things. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. How'd you like God saying that to you? I'm not going to have pity on you because you have broken my covenant. And this comes in a context of where Ezekiel had to do a sort of a strange thing. He said, shave off all of his hair, shave off all of his beard, take the hair, put it in three little piles, and each of those piles represented something, and that's what these third parts are here. A third part represents this. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with, with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to the winds and will unsheath the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy, as a husband would be jealous if, his, if he found his wife with another man. He says, you have been adulterous toward me, and I am jealous. When I, and he says, when I spend my fury upon them, Verse 14, moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you. They should have been a light to the nations, but now they're going to become an object of reproach among all the nations around you and in the sight of all who pass by. And you can see, you can compare Leviticus chapter 26 to see these curses listed there. But here is the promise of destruction and deportation. They're going to be taken away, um, scattered among the nations. Ezekiel says also, thirdly, that, there, that, I'm, that God is going to desert you. In Ezekiel chapter 10, 
He said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels. And you remember, some of you who've read Ezekiel, he sees this vision of these wheels, kind of a strange looking thing. And above those wheels, he sees now cherubim, angels, cherubim. He says, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city, indicating the, 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 um, the destruction is going to come to the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub. And now this, these cherubim here are the ones that are uh, constructed inside the Holy of Holies. They had wings that spread and touched each side and touched one another, big uh, figures. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, in the Holy of Holies, to the, to the threshold of the house. So from the, thresh, from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the house, that is the house of God, the temple. And the, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So we see a movement in the glory of the Lord out of the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple. And then later in that chapter, it says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Where the, cher where the cherubim and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house. So now he's outside of the court where the temple was. At the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So God's glory moves there. And then in Ezekiel, the next chapter, 11, says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, which is where the house of the Lord was, from the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain, that is, uh, the Mount of Olives, stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, outside of the city. So here's the picture. God leaves the temple and the city, and he deserts Israel because of her sin. If you want to just get a little picture of this, here is the... the um, the temple, kind of a re replication of the temple, and you can see here's the Holy of Holies here. I don't think that those figures were four-footed beasts, in my opinion, but um, anyway. So here's God. He is in this part of the temple, and he goes out of the Holy of Holies. Probably this, those uh, figures look more like this, in my opinion. He goes out of the Holy of Holies. He goes out to the threshold, and then the glory of God leaves the threshold and goes outside the eastern gate, of, of the temple. He's leaving the temple. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives. And here's a modern picture of some people overlooking the city of Jerusalem on the, from the Mount of Olives. And you get the picture of what God is saying through Ezekiel. God is leaving his people. He's going out from the Holy of Holies to the threshold outside of the court of God. And now outside of the city of Jerusalem, God says, I am deserting you. I'm leaving you because of your sin. He left Jerusalem and deserted Israel. And then the fourth aspect of the severe judgment was divorce. Um, <clears throat> in Hosea, we read that the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Wow, how would you like to have that task? And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, 
And she conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Judah for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Name this son Jezreel because it's a place of bloodshed. And there's going to be bloodshed that comes to you, to this nation. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. Now I had a friend in California and some really dear people, uh, Jim and Mercy. Her name was Mercy, and you've probably known people named Mercy, but how would you like to be told by God to name your daughter No Mercy? God is, do, he does unusual things through the prophets, but to communicate his message to them, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. When she, is, when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And then he says to the people of the nation, plead with your mother, that is the, the nation, it's a plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. She has forsaken me as an adulterous woman, and I am not her husband. He's divorced her. Isaiah says something similar. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? God wrote a certificate of divorce and gave it to Israel and said, goodbye. Of which or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away with a certificate of divorce. Judah, same thing. Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. You remember the kingdom was divided in the northern and the southern kingdoms. Um, and Judah, the southern kingdom, it says, and, the, and Judah acts just like Israel the northern kingdom, and the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Judah should have learned from Israel, but she didn't. She became even worse. And so God is divorcing. And so we see in the prophet's message uh, the element of judgment. But there's also uh, a tension that exists in there because there's also an element of salvation. Amazing salvation. And this tension can be expressed, Jeremiah says, with regard to judgment, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And, I, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Yes. I'm going to enact great judgment upon this people. But it's not all the prophets say. There's a message of salvation. You know, Hosea, where he divorces, he says, speaks a word of divorce through the prophet Hosea, has his name, his kids, strange things. Then he says later in Hosea, 
How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So you see this tension that exists in the prophets of judgment, and yet how can I give you up? And so there is this stunning salvation that is promised through the prophets as well. And we want to look at who uh, brings this salvation, what kind it is, and how it's going to happen. Who's going to save? <laughs> is open Israel? No, it's got to be God. It's God himself is going to be the one who steps in and saves. And so Isaiah says in chapter 9, familiar passage, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish because of the judgment brought upon her. In the former time, he brought into the contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the, the, the nation of Israel, the lands that they were divided into. There is judgment here. In the former time, there was judgment. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, where Jesus ministered. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and we know who that great light was. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Here is the promise of salvation. How's it going to come? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there shall be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom that God had promised that he was going to establish an eternal kingdom over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness unlike what happened in Israel who was unjust and unrighteous he is going to establish his throne on justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore who's going to do it the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this God is going to bring about this salvation. Ezekiel says the same thing that Isaiah says, that God himself is going to do for thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seek, seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, scattered be, among the nations because of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, they've been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. David had been, the, the, um, David had been dead for years at this point. But he's talking in, a, in visionary uh, language. He's saying, I'm going to set over them one shepherd, my servant David, the seed of David, who we know is ultimately Christ. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. And I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace. And then Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet, speaks and says, Behold, I send my messenger, 
And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the last prophet of the Old Testament promises that there is going to come one, my messenger, that is John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for another messenger, the messenger of the covenant, and this messenger of the covenant of G- is Jesus. And so the Old Testament closes with this r- remaining promise that I am going to send I am going to send myself. It is going to be the Lord who is really the messenger of the covenant. What kind of salvation is this messenger going to bring? Well, the answer is a new, better, and final salvation. Jeremiah 31, you're familiar with uh, that passage, many of you. Behold, the days are coming as I have watched over them, that is Israel and Judah, to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy and bring harm. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. The old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant could not suffice. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, they broke and that covenant they swore that they would keep. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, no longer written on tablets of stone, but he's going to write, he says, I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, like they had to do under Old Testament Israel. For they shall all know me. Everyone who is a member of this new covenant will know know the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. What is He said before, I will never forgive them. But now he's saying, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is a new, better, and final covenant and salvation. And so this covenant of peace that was promised by, um, by the Old Testament prophets in Ezekiel says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. It's going to be final. This is it. This is the final covenant, the new covenant. And so how is the Lord going to do this? He's going to do it himself through sending a messenger of the covenant that we know is God in the flesh. God is going to do this. And he is going to do it by establishing a new covenant. And who is going, uh, and, and how is the Lord going to do this? Well, the answer is through a suffering servant shepherd. Isaiah 49 says, The Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And he said to me, you are my servant. In the book of of, uh, Isaiah, there are four what they call servant songs, all about Christ. And one of them, and this is the second servant song, he says with regard to this one who is coming, who is characterized as a servant. And he said to me, you are my servant. This is the Messiah. You are my servant. He calls him Israel. Again, the way that God communicated with the prophets through kind of visionary and in symbolic language. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Notice what he says here. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Judah and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You see, what Mark, Pastor Mark is preaching about Nehemiah coming back and, and uh, restoring, their, the temple is being restored, they're building the walls around Jerusalem. That's not the end of it all. That's not the goal. The goal is not for the Messiah to come and just 
you know, reign back in Jerusalem on, on this earth, in that stage, uh, in this land of Palestine. No, that's not it. It, says, it, it is too light a thing for, the, for my servant to come to this. It says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is how God is going to do this through his suffering servant. And Isaiah says, similarly, Behold my servant, and this is in the fourth, fourth ser- servant song, Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at, at you, this is my servant. He's talking to his servant. And then he breaks off and says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's what's going to happen to him. That's how God's going to do it, through a suffering servant. But what's going to happen? So he shall sprinkle many nations. It's going out. This message is going out to all the nations. That is what the shepherd is coming to do. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And this is through Zechariah. A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and we know who was pierced for our transgressions, they shall mourn for him. On that day there shall be a fountain. We sing there's a fountain filled with blood. That's where it comes from, Zechariah. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? You know, Jesus was flogged. What are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now, he wasn't killed with the sword. He was crucified. But again, this is the way that the, communi- the, um, the Lord communicates through the prophets and visionary and, um, and sort of riddles as it's described in, in Numbers 12. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It's saying he's going to die. A sword is going to, he's going to be, this shepherd is going to die. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Paul quotes that in Romans. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. This shepherd is going to be struck, and he's going to be die. He's going to die. And yet, it's going to result in such, in, have such a result that they will call upon his name, and he's going to answer them. Unlike he said under the old covenant. And so what is the conclusion to this, the prophets, the prophets in their message, this message of tension, this message of judgment, great judgment that's coming upon Israel, this message of great salvation that's going to come and is going to spread beyond Israel. The suffering servant shepherd takes the judgment and the curse of the Mosaic covenant. And by the same act, he, he secures the salvation and blessing promised under the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants and even as far back as Genesis 3.15, by that same act of crucifixion, he takes the judgment and he secures salvation and blessing for not only the elect of national Israel, but all the elect of all nations. Hallelujah. That's us. So Christ is how God resolves the tension between the announcement of judgment and the announcement of salvation. Christ is how God is faithful to the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. Christ is how God fulfills his word in the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. All of this 
prophesied and foretold by the prophets. Christ is the central message of the Old Testament, and he is the one that we are now going to worship. Shall we pray? Oh God, we stand and just marvel at the amazing plan that you set into motion even when you were pronouncing the curse on the serpent and how you've carried that out through the ages and how you are still carrying it out today in carrying and bringing the gospel to the nations so that Christ would see his offspring, his seed, and be satisfied. May we worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.